The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Lord God, I thank you. Thank you, Lord, for how you continue to, to guide us as a church. I thank you for what it is that we're going to be learning from your word today. I thank you for the analogy that Pastor Terry used a few weeks ago about the lighthouse and how you call us to adjust our course setting to you rather than us wanting you to adjust your course setting to us. This life you've given us is completely about you. It's completely about your glory. Because the Son of God, your Son Jesus Christ, that you've exalted, his name is above every name because you've placed it there. And he is worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship. And as we saw in that video, Worship is how we live our life with you at the center. And I pray, God, that you would just guide us in that. As we sing these songs together, I pray that you would stir our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Amen. How good it is to worship together. Am I on? That's good. <laughs> I, um, I don't think I've ever seen Kevin move so fast as uh, having to change that guitar string or... Yeah, change the guitar string from another guitar. Uh, that was well done. I want to thank uh, the youth of our church for the great performance last week in the skit that they did uh, in Sunday morning service, and also the directing of Rudy, Rudy Wall and uh, the talented vide- videography of uh, Emily Stark. Also, thanks to Azur, Azur Lulden, who shared the message last week and did a great job in highlighting the evidence that God has given us of his divine nature and his eternal power that are evident from everything from, from atoms and molecules to butterflies and hummingbirds and ants and galaxies and so on. And uh, God has revealed himself. That's what Romans 1 really does talk about. And God has made himself known. He's a knowable God so much in the book of Revelation, of general revelation, that that um, he is knowable in the special way of knowing his son Jesus Christ as well. And uh, so we will continue on that journey as we see how God has revealed himself. Perhaps you've noticed the sermon titles have changed a little bit uh, in this series in Romans 1 right now. And uh, I had decided to go through some of the primary phrases of Romans 1 today and next week, but I've changed that up. And I'm approaching the scripture a little differently now. I have felt that um, the kind of weight of warning that God has given us in Romans 1, uh, especially towards the brokenness of sexual sin and uh, the way that God wants to call us to follow him, needs explanation. And so I have decided today to talk about God's design for sexuality taking God at his word and really looking at his design. And then next week we will get into the chapter 1 of Romans and see how it has been traded, it has been vandalized, it has been uh, cheapened, and God wants us to call us back into his design. And so, uh, as Kevin shared earlier, there's a part A and a part B, and we strongly recommend that if uh, you get to next week or someone gets to next week that you watch today's service sermon first before you get into next week. And um, 
And then following the second message, um, we're going to go into um, the whole understanding of a Q&A that could uh, result in some conversation next Sunday evening in a Zoom meeting that I will host, uh, not claiming to be any expert, but at least being able to address some of the things that I raise this week and next week in the services, as well as uh, some of the questions that might come up for discussion, and uh, that's at 8 o'clock next, uh, next week. So let's take some time just to pause and to pray before we enter into this morning's message. Heavenly Father, we stand at the edge of a vast ocean of knowledge and of experience in this area of sexuality. And uh, we acknowledge, O oh God, that you, you alone can help us as the captain of our souls and our very lives to navigate the waters. Lord, for many, the, the, the waters are stormy already, that in their own experience of sex or sexuality or gender, there have been already troubled waters and confusion and times of distress. <clears throat> and Father, for many, they do not see a safe haven in which to rest their boat, in which to find the calmness, the peace, the security that comes when we are in line with you, O oh God, and with your blueprint and your design. And so, Father, we're asking you in these weeks that you might help us to chart a good course, help us to navigate whatever it is, the storms that have come against us. For young and old alike, for all, singles and marrieds, Lord, for all people, we pray that in Jesus' name you might meet us with the teaching of your word, the understanding of your will. And Lord, that our hearts would not be resistant to the teaching of what you have to say to us, but instead, Father, that we might be receptive to the, the voice of our creator and designer and the one who has given us all good gifts, including our sexuality. Lord, we ask you, would you meet us now? We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, like many of you, um, I uh, read the novel by William Golding, Lord of the Flies, in uh, my, one of my English classes in high school. The story of the hell that a bunch of schoolboys make of an island paradise. And they turn, they degenerate into savages bent on hurting and killing one another. And there's a key moment in the novel when the key character, Ralph, just sort of pauses and says to himself these words. He says, I'm afraid of us. I'm afraid of us. And um, I think that we've all had experiences that have made us afraid of us. And perhaps there are a few areas that reveal the capacity for hurting and being hurt, for shaming and being shamed as the area of sexuality and gender. The pain, the confusion that surrounds this area cannot be overstated in our culture today. And like in Lord of the Flies, I wonder if we might think sometimes that God was wise in entrusting this incredible gift of sex to that first couple in the garden paradise called Eden. 
whether we should have, that he should have held back because clearly we have not done well at stewarding this gift as our culture has shown us. We live in a sexualized culture and indeed brokenness is all around us. When we open our Bibles next week into Romans 1 again, we will need to understand why it is that there's a severity of God's judgment upon those who refuse to follow God's design in sexuality. And so therefore it's important for us to understand what that design is this week before we open up the pages next week. That there are people who have traded the truth of God and bought into the lie of the enemy, who has mocked and vandalized and distorted God's design, deceiving many people into pursuing a pattern after their own desires and idolatry. And may God be merciful to all of us in the midst of this as we examine uh, sexual sin, because we're going to examine God's judgment. It requires incredible discernment and sensitivity because many of these themes are so close to home and sensitive, it requires great care. And because many times even Christians have not fully understood God's design, it behooves us to lay the foundation, to clear away some of the rubble, first of all, so that we can lay the foundation and build God's blueprint for sexuality. Just before we look further, I want to read a few scriptures to us this morning. And um, I'm just going to start in Genesis chapter 1 or 2, and uh, just three passages of Scripture very briefly. Genesis chapter 2, and beginning in 20, uh, around 20b or so, it says, But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And that rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, he built, he fashioned into a woman and brought her to the man. And he said, this is at last now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. In Proverbs chapter 5 and beginning in verse 18, we read of this incredible blessing of married, wedded love. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And then finally, in Ephesians chapter 5, as Paul is in the midst of a discussion about marriage and the role of wife and husband, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The word of God to us this morning. You know, there are a few things I want to say this morning 
before I say the big point. So there's four points, and the, the fourth one is the most important. And I want to begin by saying to you that there is a territory in the church that needs to be reclaimed. <clears throat> a few sociologists 10 years ago wrote a, wrote a book and described the common parental approach to talking about sex with their teenagers. They called it the don't ask, don't tell philosophy or policy. And it went something like this. We hope our kids won't ask us about what we did, and in return, we won't ask them about what they're doing. Well, you can tell on the surface right away that that's not a really great approach to talking about the birds and the bees. But unfortunately, that is not only the approach of some parents down through the ages, it's also been the approach of many churches, the church in general. Just keep that stuff to yourself, your sexual issues and problems and so on. In fact, if you are over 40 this morning as you listen to this message, you uh, have likely gotten the impression that sexual questions and problems were not invited in church. Church was not a safe place to discuss these things. Many people got the impression that sex was dirty, that God does not have anything to say about sex unless he's angry at you for some misdemeanor in that arena of sexuality. And so you better just repress your thoughts. You better just stuff that back into its container and just be nice like the rest of us. That's kind of the impression that we have been given throughout the ages. And that's the record of church. Philip Yancey has written a book, and he said, um, I know of no greater failure among Christians than in presenting a persuasive approach to sexuality. No greater failure. Many Christians grew up in a church that turned away whole generations. Whole generations of young people have been turned out into the world to find their answers to sexual questions in the world. And indeed, the world did that. They gave them the answers. Maybe they're not the ones that God would give them, but they got answers. That's how they began to study and understand. Starting in the 60s with the sexual revolution and leading us all the way into our 21st century now with the gender revolution. And so we have seen, indeed, uh, people going out into the world to find the answers because the church was being either awkward or silent, standing by as a spectator in this incredibly important theme of any one of our lives. There's an author by the name of Dr. Julie Slattery, and she has developed a ministry called Authentic Intimacy. If you want to find really good podcasts, really good uh, articles on pretty much any matter concerning sexuality from a Christian perspective, go to AuthenticIntimacy.com and you will find incredibly good material. She has written a book entitled Rethinking Sexuality and she's written this. We have been sexually discipled by the world. What I mean is that we have been taught to see sexuality from the world's narrative. Most Christians are more familiar with how to view sexuality through a cultural lens than with a biblical perspective. I believe she's right. So let's not be surprised at the confusion that exists among Christians in the church. And let's certainly not be surprised 
when we discuss traditional Christian values and sex and gender issues with unbelievers, that we might as well be talking about a flat earth view. Don't be surprised if you end up being seen as not just old-fashioned, but indeed as inhumane, unloving, and you might even be accused of hating. And that is why this same author, Julie Slattery, says, Through my ministry, I've had countless exchanges with people about sexual issues, you name it, and I have discussed it. Here's what I've learned. I will never agree with someone about sexual issues if we have different worldviews. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that, that signals, that should signal and inform a very important way of approaching our witness to unbelieving people that do not hold the same worldview. We should engage in conversation with unbelievers, recognizing that if we have not started with the same root, we will not arrive at the same flower. And we need to get down to the root of our conversations with unbelievers. And so in the next couple of weeks, as we address sex and sexuality, we must acknowledge our past negligence in allowing the world to set the agenda, and we must also acknowledge that we are playing catch-up as Christians and as churches, reclaiming territory that has always belonged to God, but in many ways has been abandoned by his people. The second thing I want to talk about is simply this deeply personal nature of sexual brokenness. It's difficult for us to discuss this matter because it is so deeply personal. Personal sexual problems are deeply personal. We have all either experienced it ourselves or we know someone else very close to us who has been sexually abused. Someone who has had sex before or outside of marriage. Someone whose marriage's experience of sex is dysfunctional. Someone who wrestles with pornography. Someone who has a same-sex attraction, wanted or unwanted. Someone who is caught in gender dysphoria. And the list goes on and on. And I can recite, I'm not going to this morning, but I can recite statistics that identify Christians in each one of these categories that I have mentioned. We are not immune to sexual brokenness. Not any kind of sexual brokenness are Christians immune to. And so it's precisely because of this deeply personal nature and this emotionally charged theme and subject that we must proceed with caution. We are talking, friends, about lives here, real lives. These are precious lives, people created in the image of God, loved by God, broken by sin, just as much as we are loved by God and broken by sin, not just any sin, but sexual sin. None of us can claim immunity from sexual brokenness. I mean that. None of us can claim immunity from being sexually broken. Let me read to you an article or a, a, a quote from David Platt in his book called Counterculture Following Christ in an Anti Christian Age. He says this I and every reader of my book are guilty at multiple levels of sexual thought, desire, speech, and deed 
outside of marriage between a husband and a wife. None of us are innocent of sexual immorality, and none of us are immune to it. And so we have, we might have our own classifications of sin. We might have our way of thinking that somehow, well, I'm not, I'm not as bad as the next guy. But we are not immune to sexual brokenness. None of us. And uh, it's something that we all share. I say this because as we launch into this, it's a highly emotional subject. It's complex. There are people that we know that will be feeling trapped in their own bodies, wrestling with gender confusion, not feeling an affinity with the gender that they were assigned at birth. They might know of some other teaching of God, but they really can't reconcile it with the voices of the culture and with the false narratives, with the feelings inside. And there is a community that's perfectly willing to give them a narrative and a script that will not line up with God's script, but it'll make sense to them. We need to have God's script. And my prayer in these couple of weeks, which is a drop in the bucket, but my prayer is that we will present God's design. People will hear about God's love for them, God's incredible love for them and his design, about their identity, and, and that that, that will, will be a voice that rises above the noise, noise of the culture that is around us. When I sit with a couple for premarital counseling, there is an exercise that I, I do with every couple that I meet with. And, and the exercise is to kind of go through a, a personal history, a relational and sexual history. They don't need to de- tell me the details of that, but they do need to sit and talk with each other about these things. And the metaphor that I use is I, I, I think about the house, or the home that they're going to be moving into as a couple. And I say to them that there, will, there, should be no, there should be no room in this house, all the doors down the hallway, there should be no room in this house that says, keep out so-and-so's sexual past. Shouldn't be there. Because a, a marriage relationship can't be built on secrets, but the truth, not on lies or truth or, de- or uh, deception, but on transparency and trust. And so former sexual involvement or shame, former relational hurts, that's stuff that should be talked through. Maybe not all the details, but it's got to be talked through because no one is immune. We have all had brokenness. And marriage has to be built on the solid foundation of God's love and of the mutuality of trust and transparency. Then going on, I want to as well say that We've all got baggage in this area, and we need to learn how to create a culture of grace in a climate of change. Before we look at the design that God has given us, this is a really important point. And um, next week, I want to uh, discuss perhaps more Bill C6, which is on the minds of many of us. I want to maybe next week commend to you the work of Dr. Ann Gillies in Western Canada who has written a book called Closing the Floodgates that is bringing some of the science and the reality out in uh, some of this gender confusion that has uh, invaded our culture. But today, before we just get into this design of God, I want to just say that, that there's a great need for us to, to own our baggage 
There's a great need for us not to pretend. There's a great need for us to face up and to have a safe place of grace to be able to address things. You know, I was thinking this past week of when our family moved to Bolivia. The five of us moved to Bolivia. Uh, and we arrived in Cochabamba. And I, I remember as we were packing in Canada, we didn't know really great detail about the kind of housing we had, the kind of amenities that were available in Bolivia, the things we could buy or not buy or have. And so we packed a lot of bags. In fact, I mean a lot of bags. We, we arrived, I remember, in Cochabamba with our 21 pieces of luggage. And uh, that was when luggage could be up to 70 pounds, not like today with 50 pounds. And there we were, and, uh, and there was all these bags, duffel bag, hockey duffel bags, action packers, big suitcases, rolling out into the airport in Cochabamba. And I can just imagine these Bolivians watching us, and it's, who's this jank family? You know, I want you to know we've all got baggage. And some people have more baggage than other people on a human scale. We've all experienced brokenness. In different ways, to different degrees, we've all experienced brokenness. And some of us might have more, some might have less. We did not all get the same start in life. We did not all have the same fathering and mothering. We did not all get the same nurturing. We did not all get the same protection. So we need to know that we all have baggage in varying degrees for very real reasons. Some of which we can't even understand. And so in this whole journey toward wholeness and holiness in this area of sexuality... God wants the church to be the shining light of a place that is creating a culture of grace in a climate of shame. Now that very language is coming from a book that is written by Nick Stumbo, the director of Pure Desire Ministries. He's called, it's a book called Safe, Creating a Culture of Grace in a Climate of Shame. And uh, I like the way he writes. He writes about the fact that the church is meant to be a place where it's okay not to be okay. (laughs) The church is meant to be a place where you don't have to hide your struggles or pretend where you can grow in the healing of grace and acceptance and love. He describes our healing, I love at one point, he describes our healing like the prodigal son. And he writes this. He says, Find people that you believe might respond to you as the Father did with grace, compassion, humility, and joy and try to avoid the older brothers that will say, it's about time, clean up your act and get it together, would you? (laughs) Perhaps in the past we've had too many older brothers types in the church and not enough father types because indeed we are meant to be the kind of culture and climate that is grace-giving. We are the body of Christ. Our relationships are the sphere of Christ's activity. And I, I can't tell you, I can't think of a more sacred moment than when an individual comes to the point of needing to confess to another person an area of weakness or struggle or sin. And enough trust has been built in that relationship 
for them to come out from behind the curtain of secrecy where the devil has had them uh, enslaved. And in that moment when they come out and humble themselves, confess their struggle, and they receive grace instead of judgment, that moment is the most sacred moment in the church, I think. That moment is one of the most important moments in the church. Because there, right there, God commands the blessing. God commands the blessing of a culture of grace that overcomes a climate of shame, where fear and shame and guilt are overcome by the power of God's love and God's people loving as he loves in Jesus' name. Well, let's move on now to what I believe is the most important point of this morning's message, and, and that is that God has a plan. God has a design that we need to recover the territory of a biblical view of sexuality and covenant love. And uh, there are really only two roads that you can travel on this one. When it comes to the subject of our sexuality, either it is a gift from God to be expressed the way he's designed it, or it is a personal expression of our own autonomy and our own identity and our own feelings and our own desires, and God really doesn't have much to say about it. You need to travel one of those two roads. And as those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and his lordship over all areas of our lives, I believe that we are compelled to begin where God begins and to view our sexuality with the lens of his original design. Otherwise, we will not make sense of Romans 1 when we get into it next week. So what is a biblical view of sexuality? Well, in Genesis 1 and 2, we read about a foundational principle called the imago Dei in Latin, the image of God. In Genesis chapter 1, 27, it says this, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The first thing we read about God's image is that he created humans as either male or female. That's incredible. Right out of the gate, just as, as the principle is, is made known, he says, and here's the first thing you need to know about my image. I created every human being, either male or female. Now, I want you to understand the context of verse 27. Up until verse 27 of the first chapter of the Bible, there has been a phrase used nine times, okay, And the phrase that God has used in those six days of creation nine times is the word, is the phrase, according to its kind. If he's made trees, he says at the end of it, he made them all according to their kinds. If he made animals, he made them all according to their kinds. If he made fish or birds, he made them all according to their kind. And God had specificity. He had had a, a, a dignified, clear creation plan. And then he comes to the creation of humanity in his own image. And he says, male and female, he created them. It's his way of, again, saying, according to their kinds. There is no other kind of human being, male and female. God created them. In God's gender catalog, there are two genders, male and female. Later in chapter, 20, or chapter 2 and verse 24, 
we go on and it says that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, something that is only possible in a heterosexual way. The biblical view of sexuality, male and femaleness, finds its expression in a marriage union, meaning one man and one woman coming together in a committed monogamous relationship. And last year when we were going through the book of Genesis, I identified eight different features of this building block relationship to society. I identified eight different ways that this fundamental relationship of marriage is the building block of all society. Just to quickly show you them, this, this marriage relationship reflects God's image and his unconditional covenant love. It solves the problem of Adam's loneliness, or our loneliness. It creates a relationship of the deepest possible earthly intimacy, physical union as well. It provides stable procreation in the security of a loving relationship with two parents. It is the model of maleness and femaleness to every little boy and girl that's growing up in this world. It is the offer of ideal conditions for the discipleship, the passing on of the faith in every child's life in the family unit. It is the forming of a wider net of support for the family unit. When troubles come, there's uncles, there's aunts, and there's grandparents and cousins. And then it is the comfort for the suffering or the elderly with a loving family surrounding them at the end of life. You see, this is a brilliant plan that God has. This is an incredible design that God has made. And it includes the gender identity and sexuality and sexual union all coming together, finding expression in a committed, monogamous, heterosexual relationship of covenant, unconditional love. And there is a simplicity and there is a clarity, but I want to add one more thing. And that is that there also is a mystery. The marriage union is also a mystery. Paul identifies that in chapter 5, verse 32 of Ephesians. In the midst of talking about marriage, Paul says this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In the middle of Paul's lesson on marriage, he pauses and he tells us, his readers, that he's really talking about Christ and his people. And so, really, what he's saying is that marriage on earth is really a shadow of the substance which is God's relationship with his people, his covenant love, his unconditional love. Now, this, the implications of this are profound, and that's why God teaches us this throughout the Bible in different ways. It means that marriage is not just about us. That's incredible. Marriage is not just about us. It helps us to get at the heart of why God places such value as well on sex in marriage and prohibits it elsewhere. It's because both marriage and sex are a picture of something greater, deeper, more eternal. It's a template of God's love for his people and the spiritual intimacy that ought to accompany it. So let's explore that further for a moment. God has designed sex to be enjoyed in a marriage by a woman and a man who have committed themselves to each other in this unconditional covenant love. Now, covenant means not contract, 
not a contract where if I hold up my end of the bargain, uh, that's good, but if you don't hold up your end, I'm not obligated to hold up my end. That's not covenant. That's contract. Covenant says I'm committed, and it doesn't matter your performance in this. That's God's relationship with us, and that's what marriage is meant to reflect. And so we enter into this intimacy, this relationship gets lived out with the vows that we've we stated on the wedding day, for better or for worse, in joy or in sorrow. And we do see the best and the worst of each other in marriage. And we do create joy and we create sorrow for each other in marriage. And there is a relationship born in marriage that is incredible like no other. When you find the person you are to marry, you find the person that God will use more than any other person to sanctify you and to cause you to become more like his son, Jesus. And in this intense relationship of love between two sinners who hurt each other sometimes, but then confess that sin and forgive one another and heal together, and work at it and sacrifice and think of others over themselves in this relationship, this kind of relationship, there is trust. This kind of relationship is the soil of growing vulnerability. This kind of relationship is where openness and fierce loyalty grows. This kind of relationship is also the same relationship where there's the potential for brutal honesty. Where there is the potential for vulnerability. Where you talk to a person the way you don't talk to anybody else. Where you risk with that person that you don't risk with anybody else. And to this relationship alone, God gives the gift of sex. Precious exclusive, passionate, unashamed sex. There should be nothing casual about sex. Not the way God designed it. Let me read to you a quote from Timothy Keller in a sermon that he preached some years ago because he says it better than I could and I'm just going to read this rather extended quote. <clears throat> When you use sex inside a covenant, it becomes a vehicle for engaging the whole person in an act of self-giving and self-commitment. When I, in marriage, make myself physically naked and vulnerable, it's a sign of what I have done with my whole life. Sex is supposed to be a sign of what you have done with your whole life. And that's the reason why sex outside of marriage, according to the Bible, lacks integrity. You're asking someone to do with your body what you're not doing with your life. You're saying, let's be physically vulnerable to each other. Let's do physical display, disclosure, but not whole life vulnerability. If you, if you have sex inside a covenant then, the sex becomes a covenant renewal ceremony. It becomes a commitment apparatus. You're getting married all over again. You're giving yourself all over again. It's incredibly deepening and solidifying and nurturing. In marriage, when you're having sex, you're really saying, I belong completely and exclusively to you and I'm acting it out. I am giving you my body as a token of how I've given you my life. I am opening to you physically as a token of the fact that I've opened to you in every other way. End of quote. 
You see, in marriage, this, this is an incredible gift to marriages. And it's a substance, it's a picture of the substance, a shadow, it's a metaphor of the real thing that God is trying to teach us. If we take this as a metaphor then and we apply it to our relationship with God, we see the lesson that it teaches. Jesus comes to us. Jesus comes to us and, and we learn to trust him because we see that he has an incredible love for us. Every human being responds to love. We become his bride as a church. We gladly receive him because we are so completely loved and we want to love him back. And when we understand this pursuing and patient love of God, we realize that every marriage falls short of it. We get that. But um, just as sin has marred the image of God in each one of us so that we are not perfect image bearers, so also sin has left its mark on all of our marriages so that we are imperfect reflections of God's covenant love. But we still are reflections. Just as each of us are image bearers, we still in our marriages are reflections of God's covenant love. Every marriage, regardless of how dysfunctional, every marriage, regardless of how imperfect the trust, the love, the vulnerability, and the sacrifice is, every marriage is meant to be this mysterious reminder of Christ's love that sets us free. And not only marriage, but sex as well is meant to be a picture of God's love for us. Sex is meant to help us in our marriages to point to the passionate love of God, the sacrificial love of God. In fact, sex requires both of those things, doesn't it? Sex requires passion, and sex requires sacrifice. That I don't look out only for my own interests and needs, but that I think about my, my wife, my, my spouse. And God calls us to that. God calls us into this deep relationship. And so just as a husband enters his wife and leaves his seed so also Christ enters his bride and deposits his Holy Spirit. And the miracle of recreation takes place. Now if such thoughts make us squirm, it's only because we have been discipled by an over-sexualized world that has cheapened sex and vandalized it. Many believers not even understanding the mystery that Paul's talking about in this passage. Even for single people, I want to make just one or two comments. Even for those of you who are single that are listening or watching in today, you also have had a close encounter with a marriage that you have viewed. It is your parents. And it has been an imperfect marriage. It has imperfectly taught you, however, something about a perfect God. Every marriage teaches that if we think about it. And even the sexual desires that are in a single person, man or woman, they are also meant to remind you of this incredible and passionate love that God has for you and the call for you to love him back. That's what even those sexual desires can create. For you to recognize that you were created in the image of God to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And even with your body, as Paul says, who was a single man, by the way, Apostle Paul said in chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. 
That's what God calls all of us to do, single and marrieds. And so I believe that God is on, a, on the march. He's, he's reclaiming territory. God is reclaiming territory that Satan has camped out on for so long. And even as, even as God promised Abraham the land of Canaan, and the Canaanites had moved in and for generations had defiled that land, and then one day God raised up Joshua and the Israelites to go in and reclaim the promised land that had been given to Abraham. So also I believe we are meant to reclaim this territory that the enemy has thought is his. Reclaim it. And recognize in reclaiming it that God has the grace and the power to clean up any poor image bearer like me or you because we all are broken. We all are tainted. We all are stained. We all need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. And he came not just to forgive you of your sin, but to help you overcome the footprint of sin upon you. He helped you overcome this incredible, defiling way that especially sexual sin, causes such shame. That's what the grace of Christ can do for every one of us. We're all a work in progress. Oh, that, that you would understand that God sees the beautiful person you are, the person he made you to be, and that the, the, the grace of God in Jesus Christ can recover that original image of God as male or female in you. God wants to do that for you. And um, we need to stop believing lies. We need to stop believing any lies that, that somehow God made you defective, that somehow God doesn't see your marital problems, that somehow God doesn't understand the inner desires that are conflicting with you. Only sin has twisted, not God. And we can recover the beauty that we've been created in, in and through Jesus Christ. But we must do it God's way. The world's way will lead to destruction. And God's way will lead to life. You know, it's high time in the church that we recognize that there's not just a certain group of people in recovery groups. We're all in sin recovery groups. <laughs> I can't hear an amen, but I can hear a little one. <laughs> We're all in sin recovery groups. And the basis of our recovery is the fatherly love of God and the husband of God that Jesus Christ came to be for his bride, the church, and the incredible intimacy that he calls us into with each other and with him. As the worship team comes, we're going to be concluding with a song that'll just focus us on that love of God. And I want to just pray for us before we, before we go to that song. Let me just pray with us together. Oh, Father, I pray that your word will be clear enough. I pray, God, that, that we won't be fooled any longer. That, God, that you might be merciful to, to plant your seed of your truth within our minds and our hearts to help us to understand that we were created in the perfect image of God, 
that sin has broken that image and it is being redeemed. It is being restored, O oh God. And it is only done through Christ. It is only done as sin is dealt with and as you begin by the power of your Holy Spirit within us to show us your design and to call us forth. And Lord, we need each other to do that. We need the church to be this incredible uh, climate of grace, this culture of grace. I pray that you'd, you'd take us there further and further. Lord, bless this message for the goodness uh, of uh, the, the good of your people, O oh God. And Lord, help us to have ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for your lavish grace towards us. As Terry's pointed out, we are reminded that we are all in recovery. We are all strugglers with our flesh, with our sin, with our thoughts, with our deeds, and all kinds of avenues of life. We've strayed so, so often from, from having you in the center of everything. But we thank you, Lord, we thank you for this covenant that you've invited us into. This covenant where you have done all of the work and we can enjoy all of your grace. And I pray that as we continue to wrestle through Romans chapter 1 and, and through all the truth that there is and as we learn, I just pray that you would help us to depend on you, to grow us closer to you, that then, from that, we would continue to choose you more in how we live out, in what worship looks like in our life every day. Thank you for meeting us here today. I pray that you bless each one, each one who is watching this, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody have a wonderful day.